0: Dear God, my brothers just told me about being born. That doesn't sound right. They're just kidding, aren't they? Dear God, if you watch me in church Sunday, I'll show you my new shoes, writes Mickey. I like that. Dear God, we just, we read that Thomas Edison created the, invented the light. But in Sunday school class, we learned that you did. So my bet is that he stole your idea. Oh yeah. Dear God, writes Charles, I don't think anyone could be a better God. Well, I just wanted you to know that. And I'm just not saying that because you're God already. And the last one is a Sunday school teacher challenged her children to take some time on a Sunday afternoon to write a letter to God. They wrote it and brought it back to Sunday school the next week. And here's what one little boy wrote. Dear God, we had a great time at church today. Wish you could have been there. Ouch. Ah. One has to appreciate the simplicity of a child's faith, the transparency and the vulnerability to simply tell it like it is or as one sees it as so refreshing in our politically correct climate. As I thought about these letters to God, I was reminded of Daniel and his wonderfully personal relationship with God. See, he was a man who had come to place his faith in God's promise that one day the God would send a Savior to the world, that he would send Messiah, Daniel believed God and took him at his word. And the Bible says because of that, he was made right with God. For putting faith in the word of God and the promises of God. He was also one who read the word of God and took it as it was meant to be taken. And that was simply that he would take it literally. And if God said it, he believed it. And if God told him to do something, he simply did it. He didn't complicate things. He didn't rationalize or justify his behavior if he needed to change and what he was doing was wrong before God. He simply adjusted his program to God's. You know, what's interesting is that he embodies what later we're told in the book of James when God says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who will give generously and above reproach. And Daniel was a man who at times lacked the wisdom in his life. And in Daniel chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles, we find him in one of those rare moments in time where he lacked wisdom and he didn't really understand what was going on. And in Daniel chapter 9, we've been reading through this particular prayer of Daniel, but we're going to pick it up at verse 20 and read through the end of the passage. And Daniel was in one of those moments where he didn't understand how everything that God said could come to fruition. There seemed to be contradictions, and many of us, I'm sure, can relate to that. God, it seems like you're contradicting yourself. How can all these things be true? And as he goes to God in prayer, we read these words starting with verse 20. Daniel writes, now, I w- well, now while I was speaking and praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. It says, And he gave me instruction, and he talked with me, and he said, Daniel, I have come now forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the, the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined." Says and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And this particular chapter is probably one of the most remarkable chapters in all of the Bible. Many have called it the greatest chapter in the book of Daniel, and also one of the greatest chapters in all of uh, all of Scripture. In fact, if you would comprise a list of the top ten passages that deal with prayer and also prophecy, you'll find this particular passage on both of those top ten lists. It's an unbelievably remarkable chapter, and I say unbelievable, I had a friend I used to say, "'Isn't God unbelievable?' And he'd just look at me and he'd laugh because he knew what I was talking about. But if I would have really stopped to, to think about what I just said, is God, isn't God unbelievable? Well, hopefully not because if he's unbelievable, then why do you believe him? I mean, but the problem is it's just so remarkable sometimes what God does. and We're just so ill-equipped to, to be able to, to explain it in any way. In fact, the Bible says that, that Jesus Christ is the indescribable gift of God. And thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. And the word is translated to the point where it's like there's no, there's no words that human beings can, can put to express what God has done for us in Christ. But as we look at this it's in one of the most remarkable passages in all of the bible and we're going to see that as we go through it but what's fascinating as we go through it's important that we understand the background if you will recall if you look at verse 2 of this chapter that daniel was in the process of examining the scripture he was going through the books of the bible the scripture as he had it at that particular time and he was trying to get answers to what god was doing as far as the nation of israel was concerned as he was going through the word of God, and he went through Deuteronomy, he also went through the book of Jeremiah. We're told specifically that it was in Jeremiah that he stumbled across and, and, and discovered the desolations of Jerusalem, which had to do with God's discipline for the nation of Israel, specifically as it pertained to the fact that they had disobeyed God for 70 consecutive Sabbath year rest which was every seventh year they were supposed to rest. They chose not to. They disobeyed God and they did it for 70 consecutive Sabbath years or 490 years of disobedience. So what God's sentence was for the nation of Israel is that for 70 years, one year for each year of your disobedience, you would be taken captive by another nation and you would be exiled from Jerusalem and you would be hauled away and that's exactly what we find in the book of Daniel, that Daniel was one of the exiles who was captured and taken into Babylon, which is about 800 miles north of Jerusalem. So they are away from that particular area and they've been away for a number of years. Now what's interesting as we go through this is that that Daniel was convinced that God's word is trustworthy yet he's confused to how these things could take place. And so he turned to God in prayer. The Bible said at that particular point that God's people would turn to God fervently and and with a determined state and pray to God and God would hear their prayers and would restore them to their land to bring them back to Jerusalem. But, But Daniel was confused and there's a lot of confusion in his mind so he turned to God because he lacked wisdom and by the way when it says in James if any man lacks wisdom it's if and since it is so there's no question about it God knows we all lack wisdom and God says when we lack wisdom in whatever area of life it is that we're to turn to God who will give us wisdom and give so beyond reproach he will never criticize us for coming to him and saying God I don't understand he will never say well why don't you understand by now and gee whiz you know what are you stupid or something I mean because he already knows that So, you know, that's a given. You know, we're all like sheep. We've gone astray. And sheep aren't the brightest animals that God created. So God uses that to illustrate a point sometimes about the nature of man. And so God knows we're not the sharpest tacks, you know, in the box. But that's okay. He loves us anyway. And, uh, you know, when you look like, don't be insulted by that. Just ask the person next to you if that's not true of you. (laughs) So we, we look at this. And now here's Daniel. He is confused by what's going on. And what we need to do, and this is the neat thing about knowledge... Knowledge is retained information. See, as we've been going through the book of Daniel, I hope you realize that we're supposed to be building on a foundation that's already been laid. So I want to stop and think for a second about what you have learned so far. (laughs) Isn't that a scary thought? (laughs) But we're going to try it anyway. You know, what have we learned so far may be different than what what God has shown us to date, but here's the bottom line, and that's this. Daniel has lived an incredible life. He was taken into captivity when he was a teenager, probably about the age of 17. He was hauled to Babylon and this is about, he's about 85 years of age at this point. So it's about 68 years into the, pro, into the process or the program. So now we know from what we've learned to date that Daniel was elevated to a prominent position in the administration of the Babylonian or Chaldean empire that he lived long enough to see the transition between the Babylonians or Chaldeans and the Medo-Persian Empire, and he's in the same position in that particular empire as well. If you recall in Daniel chapter 2, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a vision or a dream. Daniel not only interp- not only made the dream known, which was unheard of to that point in time, but he also interpreted the dream, and what was the dream about? The dream was about God's plan for man. It had to do with the uh, Gentile Rome, uh, Gentile world dominion or domination. So stop and think about this. He said, from in the vision of Daniel chapter 2, he said, And Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. If you recall, there will be a gradual succession between empires that would take place on the face of the earth. Uh, the Chaldean Empire or the Babylonian Empire was the first of those empires that God recognized in that vision. He says, And Nebuchadnezzar, you start the whole process. You are the head of gold. Daniel lived to see the transition to the Persian empire, the Medo-Persian empire that arose after that. And Daniel now is in a position of leadership in the Persian empire, but he also knows what? He knows the rest of the story. He knows that the Persians will fall one day and that ultimately uh, a Ma- Macedonian, uh, Macedonian or the Greek empire would take, take over, and then ultimately after that would be taken over by the Roman empire. So here's Daniel, and he's got all this information, and he's confused about how, how it all comes to play. We've got the, the Chaldean empire, which has already fallen. We've got the Persian empire, which is now in existence, present tense. We know that that's going to fall, and there's going to be a Macedonian or Greek empire that will rise after that. There will be a great leader, Alexander the Great, and when Alexander the Great dies, his empire will be split among four generals, which we also know. Though. And among one of those, or uh, from the midst of one of those generals, will come another little horn or another leader who will be a terror to the nation of Israel. He will destroy the people of God, he will destroy everything that, 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 uh, that they find holy and sacred. And we know from history that his name was Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes, and what the Jewish people called Epimenes, which meant madman, the guy was a lunatic. So we know all of these things are going to take place. But now here's Daniel and he's searching the word of God and here's what he comes up against. He comes up against the fact that God promises at the end of 70 years that he will restore his people to the, to Jerusalem. And yet he also knows, what? He knows that the Persians will be defeated by another empire that'll come. And then another empire will come after that. And he knows all of this stuff and he can't fit it all into place. And so he turns to God in his confusion and says, God, I don't understand how everything that you said, even though I believe everything that you said, and how many of us find ourselves at that point in life, God, I, I, I understand everything that you say, and I believe everything that you say, but I just don't understand how all the timing works. Just help me understand the timing of it all. Where does your people, God, and that's what Daniel's praying, God, where do the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, where does Jerusalem fit into this big picture that you've given me? I don't understand and I need your wisdom. So he prays. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, we read what? He is praying. He needs God to give him an answer. God, I don't understand. I understand what you said. I just don't understand how it's all going to work. And many of us are in the same position in life, aren't we? God, I understand what you said. I just don't understand how this is all going to work. How's this all turn out? Help us understand which will we be looking for. What are the signs of your coming? All those questions that we ask, God, help us to understand it. Now look what it says. Now I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction, and he talked with me, and he said, O Daniel, I've come now forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. I had come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision." There is so much interesting and powerful information in this passage as it pertains to some of the truths that God wants us to understand. The first one is this. I want you to recognize what he says. In verse 20, he says, Now while I was speaking and praying. While he was still speaking and praying, Gabriel shows up in his presence to give him an answer to that which he's been praying about. Now, to me, I find that absolutely incredible. And there are a lot of important things as far as the doctrine of angels that are being let, uh, brought to light at this particular point as well. Because basically what we find happening here is that Gabriel is in the presence of God. As Daniel begins to pray, Gabriel is dispatched by God to go to Daniel and answer the question that is now plaguing his soul, basically. While I was still praying, a couple of things stand out. Number one, Gabriel is a messenger of God. It's important to understand our day of confusion today as far as angels are concerned, what their role and what their purpose is. And don't ever misunderstand something and that's this, that angels are created beings by God. Romans 1 says that we should never, as a created being, worship any other created beings, that we should always worship the Creator, We should never worship an angel because an angel is a created being as human beings are created beings. But what's interesting is that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God and angels are not. Angels are not omnipotent. They are not all knowing. They only know what God reveals to them. That's why when man was created, the angels look from heaven and try to figure out what this program was all about. They only know what God tells them. And so it's important that we realize that Gabriel is a, only a messenger of God and is sent by God to Daniel to minister to Daniel, for angels are ministering spirits sent by God to minister to God's people. Isn't that a wonderful truth? We're not to worship angels. Angels do not deserve to be worshipped, nor do they ever ask to be worshipped, except for those fallen angels who say, hey, worship me. And that's exactly the sin of Satan or Lucifer as the Bible says. And he was thrown from the kingdom of heaven and a third of his angels fell with him because they wanted to be worshipped as God and they were not willing to worship God. It's a fascinating study of free choice or the freedom to choose. And I got an interesting conversation yesterday when someone said, you know, why did God allow evil? You know, and all that question that goes with that. But the bottom line is this. Because, you know what, there are things that we don't completely understand and God's smarter than us and one day it will all make sense to us. But until then, I understand that God allowed it to happen for His purposes and for His reasons. And the bottom line is He's given us the freedom to choose and it's a wonderful gift that God's given people to be able to choose. He could have made us that we didn't know any different. But He created us in His image and His likeness and obviously choice was a part of that package and He allows men to either accept Him or to reject Him the freedom to choose, the freedom to love. We love because He first loved us. The person I happened to be talking to, I said, let me ask you this question. Isn't it, isn't it more special, if you want to call it that? Isn't it more, uh, uh, I, I, the lack of a word of, isn't it more exciting for you to know that somebody chooses to love you because they choose to rather than being told to? Doesn't it make more sense, doesn't it mean more to you that I come to see you because I want to versus somebody who is appointed to come to see you and they have to? We all know that. We all know how wonderful it is to have a spouse who loves us because they choose to. They could have chose to love anybody else. They could have chose to spend the rest of their life with anybody else. And how wonderful it is to know that they chose you. That is an absolute miracle of God. And don't you ever forget it. That she chose to spend the rest of her life with you. That's grace. We should change your name to grace. But the bottom line of it is that there is freedom to choose. And we're going to see that as we go through this particular passage. Now, another interesting thing that, steps, that kind of stands out is this, that, that uh, Gabriel was in the presence of God. We know from uh, the Apostle Paul as he goes to the third heaven or paradise that that is the present, that is the abode of God, so to speak, even though we know that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere, his spirit fills the universe all at one time. And yet there's there's this local place, for lack of a better word, that the Bible says is the third heaven. The Bible says there's the first heaven, which is the atmosphere around us, which we read in the book of Genesis. There's the second heaven, which has to do with the moon and the stars and the galaxy and all of that goes with that. And then there's the third heaven, which is the place of God or the presence of God, which is called paradise. Now, what's fascinating to think about is this. In the second heaven, the closest star in the second heaven is what? The sun. The sun is 93 million miles away from earth. Now if the sun is 93 million miles away from earth and it's the closest star, it's kind of fascinating to think about this, but speed, light travels, I mean, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. So it takes light 186,000 miles per second to get from the sun to the earth. Which would mean, basically, if you think about it, it would take, it takes light about, what, eight minutes to get from the sun to the earth? What's fascinating is that wherever the presence of God is, is even beyond that. And Daniel, as, as Daniel was praying, God dispatched Gabriel. And Gabriel was almost instantaneously before Daniel with the answer to his prayer. Now what I love about that is this. Remember when Jesus was arrested in the garden? And they pulled out their swords and they said, hey, we're going to protect you. And Jesus said, what are you doing? He goes, don't you know that my father who's in heaven can dispatch 12 legions of angels just like that if he wanted to to protect me? Twelve legions is three to six, three thousand to six thousand soldiers. It was a Roman term for a number of soldiers. That three thousand to six thousand that God the Father could have sent twelve legions of angels just like that. Seventy two thousand angels could have showed up on the spot. I mean, stop and think about it. The bottom line of what I'm trying to get across is this. Some of us really struggle with God's timing in answering our prayers. As if He can't answer it immediately. Let, let's put that one to rest forever. God, if He chooses, could answer our prayers even before we pray. Because why? He knows even while Daniel was beginning to pray, He sent the answer to what Daniel would pray concerning the nation of Israel before Daniel even said it, because God knows all things and He knows our thoughts. Psalm 139 says that God knows our thoughts. Even before we yet utter them, God knew them. Even before Daniel began to pray, God knew his thoughts and sent an answer instantaneously to Daniel that he would have an answer to that which plagued him and troubled him. So I guess my point is this. If God chooses not to answer your prayer instantaneously, it's because he chooses not to for his purposes and for a good reason. He certainly can if he wants to, but there are many times in life where he simply does not do that immediately. This is one of those times where he does. If you remember when Peter was sinking out into the water, when he walked out to see Jesus, he was walking across the water and he took his eyes off the Lord. He began to sink and he said, Help me! An instantaneous prayer answered instantaneously. Fortunately, God doesn't let stuff stack up on his desk and get to him. Sometimes we believe that. It's like, well, can you you get to that one quicker? He can get to it as quick as he wants. It's just a matter of whether He wants to or not and what the purpose is. But, you know, God does what He wants because I don't know if we all recognize this yet, but because He's God. And I'm not just saying that because He already is. (laughs) I like that. But the purpose of the instruction, look, in verse 22, He says, He gave me instruction, Gabriel says, He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth, He says, to give you insight and understanding. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for what? For doctrine, for instruction, to teach us. He gave me instruction to share with you. He goes on and he says, And at the beginning of your supplications the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, you are greatly loved of God. God loves us. And He gives us every bit of information He thinks is pertinent and relevant for us to know. He has given us everything that we need to know. And as we'll see, He has given us everything that we need to know about the beginning, about the present, and about the future. We've got all the information. Jesus said that He called His disciples friends and that He didn't hold any secrets back from them. But the Word of God gives us everything that we need to know as far as God is concerned about what life is all about. Because we're greatly loved. He informs us. He tells us the truth. The Bible says that his word is truth and that we are to be separated or sanctified in truth. I want you to listen to me and I want you to pay attention because what we're about to begin to learn, the instruction that we're about to be given is some of the most incredibly remarkable information that any human being can have and it is a wonderful gift from God. This is an incredible passage and it deals with the 70 weeks of the book of Daniel. And the 70 weeks begin, as we're going to take a look, in verse 24, we find this. We find the cause behind this prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 24, we read these words. It says, "...seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy... And to anoint the most holy place. Daniel was informed that God's program would be uh, consummated in what he says is 77s, or as we look at this, 70 weeks. And since Daniel had already been thinking in terms of years, which we know that God's program in Daniel 9, 2, it talked about the 70 years of captivity in Jeremiah 25, it talks about the same thing, same with Second Chronicles 36, it's natural for him to understand that the 70 weeks as we have here, or 77s, are actually years. And the reason for it is very simply. The Jewish people thought in terms of sevens. There were seven days in a week. There were seven. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year rest, which he was well aware of. Uh, seven sevens brought them to the year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year. And so 70 sevens, in this particular case, or 70 weeks, are a span of 490 years. So whatever God is going to tell him now is going to take place over a span or a period of time of 490 years. As we look at this, the instruction as we see this, the causes of this particular prophecy goes into the first one and he says this seventy weeks or seventy have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy sevens are decreed or determined, some translations have. Seventy sevens are determined. Literally what it means is seventy sevens are set. It's a fixed period of time set by God. It's non-negotiable. It's not going to change. It's going to happen exactly as God says that it's going to happen. And what's fascinating about that is is that Daniel understood the truth. When God said something's going to happen the way that he said it, it will happen exactly that way. Sometimes we don't understand it, but when we look back on it and have hindsight, you go, hey, it happened just like God said it would. So Daniel, think about what he's lived through. The Bible says, and God warned them, if they disobeyed God, that they would spend 70 years in captivity. And as he looked back over the course of his life, he realized, you know what? It happened exactly as God said it was going to happen. Daniel had also, in the vision of Daniel chapter 2, saw the succession of, of empires from the Babylonians to the Persians, and even though he hasn't lived to see the Macedonian Greek Empire or the Roman Empire or any of the other things that are projected into the future, he recognized and understood God said it, and there were people that I'm sure figured, hey, you know what, there's no way that Babylon would ever fall. This great head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, and they're going to fall? you got to be kidding me. And then the fall the way that they did where the Persian army just marched right into the city and took over with hardly even a battle is incredible. Daniel lived to see that succession of power. So we realize, you know, if God said it's 70 years, it's going to be 70 years. If God says that, you know, Babylon's going to fall and the the Persians are going to take over, that's going to happen exactly as he said. Remember also that God said this about Nebuchadnezzar. If you do not repent and turn to God, what would happen to him? That for seven years, he would be insane and he would be like the animals of the field where he'd be out grazing in the grass like a cow or whatever. And you know what happened? Exactly what God said would happen. Seven years later, all of a sudden, as if it was absolute miracle of God, his insanity went away. Nebuchadnezzar came to a sense And he praised God and said, hey, if I ever do anything as stupid as I did before you turn me into an animal uh, I just want to let you know that I'm putting my faith and trust in you That was a great word picture He he learned I learned, that's good You're God, I'm not But what did he learn? He learned this When God says something, it's going to happen exactly as he says So here's this vision And he says, I just want to let you know, God says, that these 70 years or 77s have been determined by God. Now, there's something that we need to understand as it relates to us, and that is this. When God says something, it's going to come to pass exactly as he says. If God says that it is appointed or determined or set for man to die once and then come judgment, you can bank on it. It's going to happen exactly as God says. It's important for us to recognize that every day of our life has been determined or set by God yet before we even lived one. That is a study in and of itself. And we'll get back to that maybe depending on what we've got going on. But notice that the 77s or 490 years have been determined or set by God. We must never mistakenly believe that when the circumstances of our life would tempt us to believe otherwise, never, ever, ever, ever fail to believe that God is in absolute control. We look around today and we start to wonder, don't we? Man, who's running the show? What's going on? And all I can tell you is this, that everything is right on time as far as God is concerned. Our problem is, and that's why we go to God in prayer seeking wisdom, is we don't really know all the details of His timing. But I'll tell you this, He is absolutely in control. Never make any mistake about that. And we're going to see that. So the 77s or 490 years have been determined and set by God. Now, listen very carefully because some of us struggle with prophecy and we shouldn't struggle with it. Because it is very clear if you just read it. 77s have been determined for whom? For your people and your holy city. You follow that? For your people and your holy city. What was Daniel's prayer? God, what's going to happen to my people? Through everything that you've you've shown me, everything as far as the future is concerned, what's going to happen to my people and what's going to happen to your holy city, Jerusalem? That is what he wanted specifically an answer for the question that he had in his mind. And therefore, that's specifically what's being answered in this particular vision that he's given. And we need to recognize and understand it because otherwise we get really confused. It has to do with God's people and it has to do with Jerusalem. For your people and your holy city. And now he begins to give us an answer. The second thing that we see, it has to do with the sins of God's people. The first thing was the sovereignty of God. The second thing are the sins of God's people. Look what will happen within that 490 year period of time. Within that 490 year period of time, for God's people, speaking of Israel and Jerusalem, here's what will happen. The first thing is this. God will finish the transgressions. God will finish the transgression. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this. What is the transgression of Israel? What is the, tra- the transgression? The definite article, the, has to do with a specific transgression. It's not sins in general. It is one specific sin of Israel. The transgression. What is the transgression of Israel? John chapter 1, we read this. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Before that it says and, and he came unto his own And his own received him not What is the transgression of Israel? That they rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah The transgression of Israel Is that they rejected Jesus Christ As the promised Messiah Savior promised by God There is one and only one transgression Turn with me to the book of Zechariah I had a couple books, chapter 12 Zechariah chapter 12, we start in verse 10. We read these words. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Which is pretty fascinating. Think about this for a second. He's saying that the people of God will be in the city of Jerusalem. He says, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn and it is in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. He says and the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives and their families and the family of the Shemites by himself. And on and on it goes. They are going to weep and they are going to mourn. Why? Because they are going to look upon the one whom they have pierced and realize that they put to death Messiah. They're going to see that. And in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. Now, what's fascinating about that is this. That means that the people of Israel will be in their land and they will actually inhabit the city of Jerusalem. That's why everyone was so fascinated in in 1948 when Israel became a state, and also in 1967 where they began to occupy the land because as you look at what God's promises were here to Daniel and through through Zechariah, He's saying there's a day coming where God will end the transgression and He will pour His Spirit out on the house of David over Israel and they will be in Jerusalem at that time. That means that they had to physically be in the land for this day to come forth. They're there today. Which is fascinating as you consider what's going on around us. So what he's saying and what's really important for us to understand is this. In Romans chapter 11, the Bible clearly asks this question as far as God is concerned. It says, I say then, has God cast away his people? And the answer is, certainly not. Has God done with Israel? And the answer is, certainly not. And we see that in Daniel chapter 9. We find it in Zechariah and we also see it in Romans chapter 11. In verse 11 it says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Speaking of Israel, and the answer is, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? I want you to listen very carefully here. The best thing that ever happened to us Gentiles is when the Jews rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. God is using us, Gentiles, non-Jews, to make the Jews jealous of the forgiveness that He's extended to us. You need to recognize and understand something that's very important. And that is this. We are in a wonderful window of opportunity for all of us who are non-Jews. The Bible says, "...but He came unto His own, and His own received Him not." But to as many as received him, them he gave the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Do you understand what's going on here? Because the Jews rejected Christ as Messiah, the transgression of the nation of Israel or the Jewish people is the day that they rejected Jesus Christ. The Bible says that they will one day look upon him whom they have pierced and they will turn to Him and repent of their sin of transgression. And at this period of time, somewhere in the future, and we know it's going to be at the end of the tribulation period, which we're going to discuss in this particular context, but we know at the end of that period of time, they will look on Him whom they have pierced, and they will repent of their sin, and they will believe Him and receive Him as Lord and Savior, as the Gentiles have had the opportunity over these last couple thousand years. It's a wonderful truth. So he's talking to Daniel he's saying, Daniel, I want you to know something. At the end of these 490 years, however it's going to fall into place, we'll talk about that. At the end of that, God will put an end to the transgression. Now think about Daniel. He didn't know what the transgression was because he had already believed God that would send a Savior. He wasn't even around. He didn't see that day when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus Christ. But he said that one day the transgression will end. We need to recognize and understand that we have a wonderful window of opportunity that's available to us. Because, because the Jewish people rejected Messiah, it has opened the door for Gentiles to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that God poured out His Spirit upon the face of the earth. So that all men, all races, all colors, all creeds, all people in all lands would have the freedom to choose to accept Jesus Christ as Messiah or to reject him as the nation of Israel did. Now it's important that we recognize and understand something that he also goes on to say in Daniel chapter 9, if you go back to that, he will put an end to sin. He will put an end to sin. Actually it means that he will seal up for the purpose of punishing those who continue in their sin. Which is really fascinating. It has to do with punishment and it has to do with um, discipline for sin. We need to recognize and understand back in... Oh, you know what? Go back to Zechariah for a second. It's really good because some of you have never been there before. So, you know, it's it's, it's good that you're there. But he will put an end to sin. Now, he's talking about judgment. Now, listen. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, listen to these words. He says, I will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. He says, and I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and tested them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Now you need to understand what God's talking about here. He's saying that, hey, I will put an end to sins, which has to do in this particular case, what has to do with punishment or judgment. And he's saying this, and it's a very somber note indeed, but he's saying that at the time that he puts an end to the transgression, which is Israel's rejection of Christ as Messiah, that at the same time he will judge those who continue to be hard-hearted and reject him anyway. They will mourn on him whom they have pierced, but not all of them will mourn on him whom they have pierced. Only a third of them will mourn on him whom they have pierced, and the other two-thirds will be judged by God and separated from him for all of eternity. So the idea here has to do with at this particular time, he will put an end to the transgression of Israel. They will recognize Christ as Messiah, but there will be two-thirds of them that say, you know what, we still don't recognize him and we never will. And God says, for you, you will be judged just like all throughout human history that have rejected God's gift of salvation in Christ. You will be judged accordingly. And that's exactly what he's saying. This is going to occur during this 490-year period of time. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. He also says this, he will atone where it says he will atone for wickedness. He will atone for wickedness. It has to do with the idea of making reconciliation. The Bible says this. The verb actually means to cover, but the Bible says this, that God was in Christ, what? Reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In Isaiah 59.20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus in the temple said, as He turned around, He stopped at that point and He said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am who God sent. I am the one God promised. I am the Savior of the world. Make no mistake about it, they understood what He was saying. On many occasions, they picked up stones to, 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 uh, to uh, stone him because of his claims to be God. He said even before Abraham existed, I am, and they knew what he meant. And they picked up stones and they were going to kill him then. Jesus Christ was sent to the cross and we need to recognize and understand it. Jesus Christ was sent to the cross because he claimed to be God. And since he is God, he was innocent of the charge and he was murdered anyway. The Bible says that the Jewish people will look upon him whom they pierced because they sent him to the cross for claiming to be God. And he was exactly who he claimed to be. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but through me. There was no hesitancy. Jesus Christ always claimed to be God. There are those today who say Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a good guy. Jesus is just all right with me. Um, You know, whatever they say. You know, they got all kind of things that they say. But you know what? Jesus Christ says that I am God. And no man comes unto the Father but through me. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Make no mistake about it. If you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you reject Him as Messiah, the promised one of God, then you will be dealt with according to God. It is appointed for man to die once. It's set. It's determined. And then what happens? And then comes judgment. You will be judged on whether you believe Jesus Christ is, is the Messiah or whether you reject that claim. You will be judged accordingly. Even God's people, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, will be held accountable to that standard. A third of them will look upon him whom they pierced. They will repent of their sin. They will accept him. They will call upon his name. And God says, you will be called my people. To so as many as received him. To again, he gave the privilege to be called children of God. To those who believe in his name. The book of Job is a fascinating book. If you go back a few books. I was going through the book of Job 1 going through a Bible study that was actually going through the Bible in a year and looking at the book of Job and it's incredible to me what Job writes as he writes in Job 19 look at verse 25 he writes this he says and as for me individually speaking he says and as for me I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last speaking of the last days he says and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. And He says, My heart faints within me. What is He talking about? Daniel chapter 9, look what we find says that 77's are decreed for you, 490 years is a period of time for you and your people, specifically the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, which is the rejection of Christ as Messiah, to put an end to sin, which has to do with the idea of sealing up for the purpose of judgment. Those who believe will be saved. Those who reject will be lost for eternity. He goes on and says, and to atone for wickedness, he says, which has to do with reconciliation, that God is pleased with the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. The idea has to do with being reconciled to God. Job said, and as for me, I know that my Redeemer, the one who bought me back to God, I know that he lives. And at the last days, he will actually physically take his stand here on earth, which has to do with the next point that Daniel brings up. He says, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Do you remember the vision in Daniel chapter 2 that talked about the succession of world empires? Do you remember the last one, the stone which came out of heaven that smashed all the other stones? There'd be no remnant of the stones. But that particular stone would set up His kingdom here on earth and of His kingdom there would be no end. He's talking about the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the days of of what's called the millennium. After the 490 years that are prophesied, at the end of that period of time, Jesus Christ Himself will take His stand upon the earth and He will rule and He will govern and He will govern in all righteousness. The Bible says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born... And unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever and ever. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus Christ one day will rule in righteousness here on this earth. And his kingdom will have no end. He will rule forever and ever and ever. And I don't know about you, but I am so excited to look forward to the day where the righteous one will rule in all of righteousness. Because we live in a world of corruption. We live in a world of decay. We live in a world of bribery. We live in a world where there's no integrity. Could you imagine being ruled by one who can only rule one way, and that is righteously? He can only do that which is right because He Himself is righteous. Because in Him there is no evil at all. There's no darkness at all. There's coming a day on the face of the earth where Jesus Christ will rule in righteousness. He will do that which is right because there is no other way that He can rule. That's a wonderful truth. He goes on and says, and he will seal up vision and prophecy. That's a fascinating study in the book of Revelation chapter 22. What's being told here in Daniel 4 is this, I mean Daniel 9 is this. Hang with me for a second because this is critical. He's saying within that 490 year period of time, God will seal up all of vision and prophecy. In the book of Revelation chapter 22, we're told it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last revelation of God. The Bible says that everything that God wants us to know has been encapsulated in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he says this. There's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take away from it. You've got everything that you need to know. God has given us the beginning. He has given us everything we need to know in the middle. And he has also told us what to look forward to in the future. What else has he left out in the absolutely nothing? You see what he's telling Daniel? He's saying to Daniel, within this 490 year period of time, all that we need to know will be given to us. In 95 A.D., we had the book of Revelation that completed the canon of Scripture. Everything God wants us to know, we have at our disposal. We can turn to it at any time that we need. People were talking about additional revelations and all the rest of it, and I asked them the question of this. What did God leave out? What did He leave out? If everything that we need is right there and we can read it and study it, what did He leave out? He's given us the beginning, He's given us everything in the middle, and He's told us what to look forward to at the end. He will seal up all prophecy and all vision. There's nothing left. God has nothing left to say. In Hebrews chapter 1, He says this, In the last of these days, speaking of the times of the prophets, He says, In the last of these days, God will send forth His Son. And in His Son, Jesus Christ, we will have the last and complete revelation of God. Everything that God wants us to know is found in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of Acts that he went and he sat down in the the book of Hebrews that he went and he purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work is complete. Jesus said in himself, he said, you know what? Hey, it's finished. It's over. It's done. And now he reveals to us what to look forward to in the coming years ahead, what to look forward to in the millennium, what to look forward to in eternity. There's nothing left. He's given us all, everything that we need. Why? Because we're greatly loved. That's why. He's given us all. And the last thing is to anoint the Most Holy. Isn't that a wonderful thought? To anoint the Most Holy has to do with the fact that there's a day coming where Jesus Christ will rule this earth from the city of Jerusalem, that He will take His place and seat in the house of David, that He will rule from the temple and from the temple Himself, read the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. It talks about the millennial temple, what to look forward to, what's going to take place. There's going to be a river that flows from the middle of the temple. It'll flow all the way down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will become alive and and stuff can live in it. I mean, it's just an incredible time that's going to take place in the history of the world and we can look forward to that. What's fascinating as we go through all of this is this. When is this going to happen? How's it all going to take place? How does that affect me and you? Because that's really all we care about, let's be honest about it. That's all the rest of us is interesting, and it's great for the Jewish people, it's great for the nation of Israel, great for Jerusalem, but not being a Jew, I want to know how this all affects me. And I don't hesitate to say it. You know what? And Daniel didn't hesitate to go to God and say the same thing. You know what? That's all fascinating about the Gentiles, but if you remember, I'm a Jew. And all I care about is the city of Jerusalem, your city, tell me about that. Tell me about how we all fit into this. And so that's exactly what God's doing. And so as we look at this, we need to look at the timing of all of it. Three things that we learned today, and we'll have to quit. Number one, the sovereignty of God. God has determined it. He has said it. It's inked. It's done. It's written. You can't take away from it, and you can't add to it. You got it? It's a done deal. So deal with that. God's in control. The second thing is, The sins of the people, as we see, speaking of the nation of Israel, He will put an end to their transgression. They will look upon Him whom they have pierced, and they will turn to Him. A third of the nation of Israel will turn to Christ for forgiveness. The rest will not. He will put an end to sins. The idea of sealing up for judgment. The the whole concept is, if you don't trust in Christ, you will be judged accordingly. He will atone for wickedness. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He will set up his kingdom. It will be one of everlasting righteousness. During that period of time all of prophecy and vision will be sealed and will be done and complete. We've got the completed word of God. And the last thing he will anoint the most holy which has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ will one day reign from Jerusalem. Turn with me in the book of John, chapter 1 as we close. The book of John, chapter 1. We're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There came a man who was sent from God whose name was John, and he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and those were his own, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. As we celebrate and we look forward to the birth of Jesus Christ, there's no greater passages of Scripture that deal with the fact that one day, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given and the government shall rest upon His shoulder. We see all of that in great detail through everything that we discovered. We see the rejection of Jesus Christ, Messiah, by the Jewish people. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But the wonderful news for the rest of us, and even for those who are Jewish, there's never, there's never a better opportunity to receive Messiah as Lord and Savior than the present moment in time. The Bible says that for as many as received Him, to them He gave the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in His name. Make no mistake about it, folks, if you reject Jesus Christ, you will be judged for your sin. The greatest transgression of man is the rejection of God's free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. But the good news is, is that you have the privilege, you have the choice to to either reject Him or to accept Him. God will never drag anybody in His presence for eternity kicking and screaming. There will only be those who have chosen to receive the gift, the indescribable gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ our Lord. What a wonderful truth that is. And we should never get tired of that message. And it's one that we need to share with as many people who God brings into our path that will listen to us because it is the truth of the Word of God. For those who receive Him, to them He gave the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in His name. If you're here, you're listening, and you've never done that, in the privacy of your own heart, I would suggest that you get right with God today. That you confess your sin. That you recognize your need for a Savior. And that you believe in Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word that's so plain and so clear. We thank you for your love that's undeniable. You give us your word because you tell us that we're greatly loved. You give us everything that we need to be made right with you. We've got the information. It's just a matter of giving up and surrendering our heart. God, I know that some of us are here and listening that are stubborn, that are stiff-necked people, that are proud and that are arrogant. Maybe they don't even know it because they think that there's nothing to be forgiven of. But the Bible says that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and through sin came death. He says that all are sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all indicted. We're all born with a congenital defect called sin nature. God, we're all in need of forgiveness. Father, we just thank you that you've sent your Redeemer. As Job says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I look forward to the day that even after I die, that through my flesh, I will see him one day standing here on the face of the earth. And he'll be ruling in all righteousness from his throne in the city of Jerusalem. God, we just thank you. We're amazed by that. We're just incredibly in awe of your word and how it comes into detail. The details come to fruition. And God, I just pray that each one of us today can examine our own hearts to see if we know the truth. That your spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's no doubt about it. And it's not arrogance or anything like that on our part. It's simply trusting in your word that it's true. God, we thank you for your word. We look forward to what you have to say as we continue to study this vision that you've given to Daniel. And we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.